Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. This is your host, Eric Mann. And I'm on Zoom with Dr. Melina Abdullah, the professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State OA, and the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Dr. Melina Abdullah, very happy to have you on Voices from the Front Lines. Thanks for having me, Eric. Well, we're in... in in a in a terrible situation that has a a sense of replication on steroids the the numbers begin with covid statistics black people being 15% of the population of illinois 42% of covid deaths in chicago 30% of the population is black 70% of the deaths among black people Michigan, 14% of the population is black, but black people constitute 40% of COVID deaths. In Louisiana, 32% of the entire state is black, 70% of the COVID deaths are black. I had a few other statistics. In Los Angeles, the black population in 1970 was 763,000. The black population in 2020, 346,000. A decrease or an attack of 55%. We can look at the black population of homeless, 42% in LA. Black tickets on MTA buses and trains, 50 to 60%. Black population of US, 12%. Black population of US prisons, 37%. Welcome, Dr. Melina Abdullah. We know that we're primarily organizers, not critics. Nonetheless, how do we even begin to have this conversation? I mean, I, I think it's a conversation that we have to have um, in the context of larger and historic anti-Black racism, right? So one of the things that we're starting to see happen as we talk about the number of COVID-related deaths is some folks pushing this narrative that, um, oh, that's because black people aren't socially isolating themselves or, you know, blaming black people for our own demise. And what we know is when we look at these rates of deaths, um, you know, what Manning Marable says about systems being intentionally and deliberately designed to produce these outcomes, right. we're seeing that very clearly with this illustration. And, um, you know, I think it's really important that we understand that these deaths have everything to do with all of those institutions and systems kind of colliding, right? So if we think about environmental racism, 
creating conditions that cause asthma in black communities, a pre-existing condition that is most likely to cause COVID-related death, right? When we think about food deserts and rates of diabetes in black communities, you know, we, we need to think about land use policies and how it created those food deserts and that being another system intentionally designed to produce these outcomes. When we think about rates of stress in the black community and how that leads to hypertension as a pre-existing condition, um, that's another system again um, that has contributed to COVID-related deaths. And then when we think about the medical system in general, there had been studies just over the last couple of years that demonstrated that black people, when they turn to hospitals for help, they're the group that's least likely to be believed. In fact, black women are least likely to be believed when they come in with pain, when they come in with symptoms, and they're often turned away from medical care when they need it. And I think that what we'll find in the months moving forward is there are a lot of folks who've been turned away from hospitals and told to treat themselves. I'd love to see the numbers on who was turned away and how race factors into that. And completely agreeing with you, of course, and then even adding, since we've both been doing so much work about police brutality, police occupation, that, you know, I see people of all races, uh, sending in questions, how do I deal, since I'm so alone, with depression and anxiety? Well, if you've been called over by police, if you've been ticketed by police, if you've been harassed by police two, three, five, 10, 15 times in your life, what are the psychological and then physiological impacts on your immune system, on your responses? So just continuing the, the litany of what a genocidal attack looks like. And, and to hear the doctors say, well, we're not saying it's race because black people have these underlying conditions, you know, as you pointed out, that are conditions of how the United States treats black people. So, um, so let's talk about demands, solutions of, how do we, everybody's saying hypothetically, well, this is a great opportunity to raise more demands on the system because its fault lines are becoming more clear. The problem, again, is a system that has such hatred of black people is not going to say, oh, my God, we're having a crisis. Let's solve the problem. So start with yourself, the leadership you're providing and trying to provide, and also the work that other people are doing why don't we start by perhaps you work in the schools or work any other demands you want to talk about and who's making those demands and a little bit of a report on how they're going. Sure. So um, a lot of the demands are demands directly around the coronavirus. So Black Lives Matter, we were very clear in the beginning, as soon as this hit, as soon as when the NBA you know, canceled its season. I think that was the moment that most people knew that this is serious. Right. And um, right after that happened, um, we had a feeling that um, it was going to hit the Black community particularly hard. There was no data demonstrating this. We just know that, you know, the old adage is true that when white America gets a cold, 
black America gets pneumonia. And so we very quickly pulled together a series on black people and coronavirus. And this was, remember early on, there were rumors and I think they were really hopes um, that black people were somehow immune from coronavirus, right? Right. And so we talked with a couple of our members and allies, um, black scientists about it, who quickly corrected the record. So we had our first virtual town hall meeting the week that um, shelter in place was declared. And um, we had Dr. Brandy Cross and Dr. Emily Vargoma talk about what the science is behind COVID-19 and how it affects people. And then we kind of anticipated, you know, there being some disparities. I don't think anybody could have anticipated the severity of the disparities until um, first, I believe it was who came out with a 40% number first? I, I don't remember who it was who came out with some locale came out with right, 40% right. of their cases first. And then the next day, Chicago came out with 70%. That's right. And I don't think anybody could anticipate that it would have been such an extreme disparity. And so um, uh, clearly having a disproportionate impact on the black community. But um when that happened, we realized that LA County, because the initial data was coming out of cities and counties, not out of states. Um, and we realized that LA County had not released racial data. And so another demand that we immediately began to advance was racial data, the collection and release of racial data in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, we do have some political leadership that's responsive. So Herb Wesson quickly picked that up and created pressure on the LA County Board of Supervisors to release the racial data. And within a matter of days, we got the racial data that here in Los Angeles County, Black people are dying of COVID at twice our population share. So we're 9% of the county's population and a little over 17% of the deaths. And so from that, Um, we have been working on a set of demands for black people, given this, um, kind of really, um, astounding number. Um, we've been working on a set of demands, which we hope to get together with other black leaders on over the next day or two, and then release later this week. But it includes things like testing for folks who want it on demand. It includes Um, Things like uh, paid, I know it's a really terrible thing to say, but um, funding for funerals and memorial services for people who die as a result. Um, It also- For a minute there, you know, I think, you know, uh, one of the first industries in the black community has been uh, the insurance companies that back in the South would collect weekly for funerals. Mm-hmm. right that people would have to have funeral insurance so it's a very long-standing oh, wow. demand and how sad that we're demanding that families have to be paid for the funerals right it's also one of the spaces and this is what we have to think about when we think about the hijacking of movements right it's also funeral funds were also one of the first spaces of black mutual aid. It's one of the practices of the AME church when it was founded in the 18th century was, you know, recognizing that we have a collective responsibility to our people. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, 
um, that's we could get into why and um, the importance of people dying and being remembered with dignity um, and the importance of that. So that's one of the things we're thinking about in, our, in terms of our demands. Um, but before those demands even started moving, as soon as um, it was declared that LAUSD um, was shutting down and initially it was only for a couple of weeks, um, we started thinking about, well, what about our young people? And I know my daughters in particular were very stressed out um, about what it meant to have so-called distance learning and have to learn in front of a screen for six hours a day, which is not healthy for anyone. Right. Um, what it meant for me to have to try to homeschool my son who, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not an elementary school teacher. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then also simultaneously work, right. Because people jobs seem to think that, you know, you can work even though you have three children at home, right. That you can work the same number of hours. So we're starting to see this creep of zoom meetings. We're starting to see ridiculous demands. Like you have to leave your camera on so they can see what you're doing. Um, but what the kids began to do with this change almost immediately, and I say kids intentionally because we're talking about K through 12 right. children, right. Um, they said, you know, we are living in the midst of the worst crisis in global history, and you all are worried about a math test, right? You're worried about an essay. You know, these children were, if you think about who you were as a kid, We've never seen them with shut down schools nationally and send kids home and people stockpiling toilet paper and water and food. This was frightening to them. It's still frightening to them, but especially in the initial weeks. And the schools didn't seem to get that, you know, we have to be concerned, as concerned about the mental and um, spiritual health of our children, about our whole and complete children as human beings, as we are with the so-called learning um, that they're supposed to be doing. And so the children began to make demands, and we partner with a tremendous organization called the Schools LA Students Deserve, and they rolled out those demands a couple of weeks ago. There's eight of them that look at the immediate things like you know, universal passage of all classes and graduation for seniors, as well as the big picture things that, you know, the school district doesn't have power over, but um, can advocate around like universal housing and food, right? And then they also look long term at things like, well, what does school look like when we get back? Because this is a trauma for the children. So they're talking about things like the provision of mental health resources on campuses, and an end to pepper spray in schools, which should be a given anyway, that never should have happened. They should have never started pepper spraying our kids in the first place. And so these children, um, along with their adult allies, have begun advocating around these eight demands, which can be found um, on our website and on our social media, as well as um, Students Deserve website and social media. And today, um, or Tuesday. What's today? Somebody today, said we it. hope it's Monday because today is going to be. By the time it's it's broadcast, it It'll will be, be Tuesday. Tuesday. But folks, it's not a secret. This is Monday. Okay? But you know what's funny? I, I don't... Monday. And by the way, before you, 
continue that you are on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, streaming live on the web at 98.7 FM and at kpfk.org. So uh, do check us out on SoundCloud as well. Check us out on Apple and check us out on voicesfromthefrontlines.com. The voice you're hearing is Dr. Melina Abdullah, the co-chair and co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And we're talking about the COVID-19 attack on the world, and in particular, the egregious impacts on the Black community in Los Angeles and the United States, and pretty soon we have to talk about Africa. So go ahead, Dr. Molina. Go ahead, Dr. Abdullah. Sure, sure. I started to say, of course, I got confused on the day. I think everyone is confused on days of the week at this point. They're just kind of blurring together. I am too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just think it's really important that we support these student demands, um, that we support also what it means, what the, what's happening in the Black community. You started to also mention policing is causing anxiety, which can lead to underlying conditions, right. um, which can lead to more acute responses to the COVID coronavirus, right? And including death. Um, but I think we can also think about the trauma which is continuing under the coronavirus crisis. So, um, you know, Naomi Klein and others talk about disaster capitalism and we see LAPD and the Sheriff's Department seizing upon this opportunity in their minds. And so we see them doubling the number of police on the streets um, even though crime has plummeted. Um, so according to the police chief's report last Tuesday, crime was down almost 40% in the city of Los Angeles. So why would you possibly need double the number of police on the streets if crime is down by almost half, right, or almost 40%? Why would you need to increase your number of patrols by 100%, right? It doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, we know that there are patrolling black communities in particular. So yesterday I was just uh, making a grocery store run and they had police cars all up in the Ralph's parking lot. And I was um, livid that they were sitting there watching people go in and out of Ralph's. Now, I don't know if they plan to cite people for not wearing face masks or what it was they were planning on doing, but I can guarantee you that when you go to the West side, when you go to the uh, North Valley, when you go to places where white folks live, that they don't have their grocery store parking lots policed in the same way that we do here in the Crenshaw district. Well, another point is that I wanna say that, uh, you know, to, to answer the question that you raised rhetorically, but of course, you know, we both know the answer is interestingly, is that one, the police are both there to threaten people, but also to say, look how valuable we are. Sure. You know what I mean? To, to do that kind of phony, where your friend in the parking lot looking out for you, because they're always politically organizing. They're very, they're counterinsurgents. They've been trained as counterinsurgents. Um, one of the things the strategy center is trying to do, I had two thoughts. One is, I don't know about you, Melina, but it's harder to work from home. I mean, it's 
I'm an organizer. I get energy from human contact. I don't really enjoy these phone calls. And pardon me, you know, I like you very much, but you know, I like <laughs> right. your face. I like your face. I like the human body. You know, I like right. seeing people. I like right. smiles, see touch, you know, hug, hello. Right. Uh, even our own organization, some of our calls are kind of flat. You know, I mean, right. like, how are you? Uh, I'm doing the best I can. And sometimes I'm telling people, you know what? Getting through this is your political work. Right. You know, don't worry about are you, you know, we all have all these high aspirations for the organization. And I have to realize that one person is sitting at a home and she's facing eviction in two months, right? Another mm -hmm. person is, is facing domestic violence where someone was let out of prison, which we want. Right. But it's the very person who abused her. And that person is going through a crisis. And then her family is going through a crisis. So, we know the ripple effect of the COVID-19 destruction of the so-called economy is putting phenomenal pressure on the very people who are supposed to be the core of the movements that we're trying to build. Right, right, absolutely. And not to mention that it has, um, so, so the idea of no in-person organizing has caused us to have to rapidly figure out um, how to not let go, how to hold on to the momentum and build momentum around the campaigns that have to continue. So everything is, you know, if you turn on the news, everything is coronavirus right now. But eventually this will pass. Um, and even in this moment, there are other things that we have to continue to advocate around and be concerned about. So, you know, we have to figure out how to continue to build movement. Um, in the midst of all of this, we got the certified election results that we were successful in pushing Jackie Lacey into a runoff. Um, even though some news outlets had reported that she won, she did not win. She only won 48% of the vote, which is not the majority, which means she'll be in a runoff versus George Gascon in November. And it didn't happen just because it happened. It happened because of two and a half years of organizing, right? Um, and, you know, of course, beyond that, but two and a half years of consistent weekly protest in front of our office. So when we think about it, we were going, well, we don't want to let up with this consistent weekly protest. So for two weeks, we did smaller protests, physical protests and did the rest online. But now we've had to move everything to, you know, an IG live session, Instagram live session. So how do we build that out and how do we make it work in our favor? One of the things that we noticed is as we promote these Instagram live sessions, one, we're becoming much more savvy about how to use social media um, even though we've always been kind of good at it, right? But wow. we're getting better at it. Um, so the in-person protests brought 40 to 50 people out every week. Our Instagram live sessions are bringing 400 to 500 people every week um, because they can join from anywhere. And so, you know, we're having to think about the what it means numerically, but then how do we make that translate into a November victory. So we're saying well, I think that that's great. And let me add a couple of things that we're working on that are consistent with what you're talking about. 
you know the strategy center has been working on free public transportation for everybody but in particular also the concept of stop mta attacks on black riders and for our listeners who have been following this it's been an absolute disaster that we won the bus riders union won uh over 10 years ago a $42 a month pass, a $21 uh, biweekly, $11 weekly pass. That meant that, you know, most people didn't even have $42, but they could do it $11 a week. Now that pass is $100. Wow. Right, $100. And if you have two students in community college, that's $43 each. If you have four students who are uh, in the K through 12, that's $24 each. If you have a son who is out of high school but unemployed, it's $100 for him to, as an adult, alleged adult, he is an adult, but charging $100 for an unemployed black or Latino or any person to look for the job that isn't there. So mm-hmm. we've been involved in a campaign with the MTA with support from Austin Butner, the superintendent of schools, uh, support from Community Coalition, Bus Riders Union playing a very active role. And the uh, MTA is moving towards a high probability of passing free public transportation for all LAUSD students as early as September, which would be phenomenal. You know, I mean, $24 a month not paid and it'll also be a better way to get people to school and much better for the environment. But now we're saying to people, wait. And I've been talking to Phil Washington, the CEO of the MTA, saying, are you really going to charge people $100 a month when they come off two, three, four months of unemployment? Mm-hmm. Their job is not there when they're going back to them. Most of the people did not have a job. So what we're working on is asking for the MTA to have free public transportation for everybody until December 31st, at least, to never, ever go beyond $50 and to have everything on the honor system. So there's no enforcement of codes because this is simply being attacked for inability to pay. That's all it is. So we want to, of course, you know, you've been one of our closest allies, and I know you've always supported this, but everyone is sort of moving into their strong suit. This is the demand we're trying to do for the Black community, for the Latino community, for the working class community, is when you get back out on the street, there must be free public transportation, and there must be a doubling of bus service so you can even get around and you can get to the jobs that may not exist, but at least you have a chance. You can then go to the hospital for a lot of the other conditions that you couldn't get to because they were saving it for COVID-19. So that's one of the areas that we're making our greatest focus right now. Right. Well, we'd love to amplify that. You know, we were with you and we've been partnering with you, you know, for the last couple of years, but um, definitely, you know, we also know how enforcement, And, you know, fair evasion has become a crime that is used to target and criminalize black people, especially. And I know that that's the rationale, part of the rationale behind what you're doing, but it should be a right. It should be a right to transportation. And I think also we have, you know, a bunch of um, 
groups that are committed to working on this, that are, you know, committed to racial justice. But you would think that those that are environmentalists would see this as an opportunity to also advocate for it. So, you know, we might want to issue that challenge to mainstream environmental groups that if we had free public transportation, that you'd have fewer people in cars um, and it would be an environmental impact, a positive environmental impact as well. We're doing a lot of work on uh, studying the impacts of, you know, we know about the impacts of air pollution, the impacts of smog, of air toxins. Now we're looking at greenhouse gases, but I'll tell you, for 25 years, the Bus Rides Union has reached out to the mainstream environmental movement and they keep saying they want to support trains. And they, if they're sorry about that, but if the MTA needs to steal the money from the bus system to build these wonderful trains that are going nowhere, that they really can't get involved in this. So we'll need your help to, uh, there are some good people in the environmental movement, but no, they have not been on the front lines. It seems to be anytime you add racial justice to it, they have like a, a psychological aversion to the concept, you know, instead of it being more attractive, right. it, it's an aversion theory. So right. um, we, you know, you've been our, one of our very dearest partners and we're going to keep going and we love Black Lives Matter and Strategy Center and Community Coalition and others to, I think, push LA, maybe a better arena for fighting for this, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get the better people in the environmental movement to come in as well. That would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Tell me about what you're reading, what you're doing. What, you're what I'm reading now is yeah. Diary of a Wimpy Kid with my 10-year-old son, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a very hilarious series. I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> well, well, you know my grandson, Raider. That's one of his, every time we go to Barnes & Noble's, that's what we buy. Right. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Right. So people have this idea that, you know, we're home, so we have all this extra time on our hands. And one of the things I just shared on social media is even comrades in the struggle continue to schedule so many. And we kind of talked about this, but um, just to be real clear, like they're scheduling all of these Zoom and IG Live and why are you not on this conference call thinking that we have time. But I have two whole new jobs. In fact, if I multiply them by the number of kids, I have six whole new jobs, homeschooling and parenting during the workday, right? Um, And so, you know, I had a fantasy about being able to finally finish. um, So uh, I wanted to, I was reading Race for Profit, Kianga Yamada Taylor's book on housing. Uh-huh. And um, I was like, oh, I'll be able to read that in another couple days. And I have not had time. I've had much less time to read than I normally have because normally I have those hours when my kids are in school to myself, you know, even if it's at work, I have it to myself and I don't have those hours anymore. Well, one of the things we've both done that we should be proud of, my wife Leanne and me and you and, you know, is contrary to stereotypes, revolutionaries are good parents or can be, and you have not had backlash from your terrific daughters who I've met, you know, who are just uh, 
staunch and, and proud of you. And yeah, that's what we do, right? I mean, uh, it's called being a parent. And, and I, I have to say, you're a great parent. And that gives you a great moral authority, in my opinion, inside the movement. And the community sees that. Well, I think the work that we do um, is about, you know, of course, love for our community, love for our people, commitment. But I think really what moves us, at least moves me, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think you share in this, is love for our children, right? What kind of world do we want our children to inherit? And, you know, um, my generation, so I came of age in the 90s, right? So my generation, um, my mom gave us, you know, what we call the talk, right? How to survive an interaction with the police, pull up your pants, keep your hands on the wheel if you're driving, right? Those kinds of things, right? Um, don't talk back, just, you know, swallow your pride and make it out the interaction alive. And I think she was even more concerned about my brother than she was of me, you know, for me. Well, what we started to see with the murder of Black people at the hands of police is no amount of engaging that way saves Black people. Right. So I have a little cousin, Andrew Joseph III, who was an honor roll student, student athlete, 14 years old. He was killed by the police in Tampa, Florida, right? And it didn't save him. It didn't matter that you know, his mother, who's my cousin, um, so I say little cousin, but he's actually my, well, he's a cousin, but he's my cousin's son. Um, she's a therapist, has a graduate degree. Her husband is a school administrator. They've always been so-called the good ones, right? Um, but it didn't save them that they were the good ones who had to flee from New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina resettled in Tampa for a new start. Um, trying to build themselves back up and then have their son murdered by Tampa police. And so what we're seeing um, is that the talk doesn't ensure the safety of my children. That's right. We have to transform systems to ensure the safety of our children. So the work when you say that, and thank you for the compliment, when you say that I'm a good parent, you know, that for me, good parenting doesn't just mean taking my kids to play soccer, right? And I know your grandkids are part of that same league. That's great. And I cook for them and I make sure they take baths, um, which is yeah. sometimes the major struggle, right? Um, <laughs> at least for my son. Um, but it's also engaging in justice work because I have to give them a world that's better than the one that we live in now. And part of that is, me doing my work, but also empowering them to do their work. And so these victories that we're talking about, that the school children won, LAUSD kids won, they are some of those LAUSD kids that won it. Um, and so I think that's all part of good parenting. Yeah, and just, you know, the, what you're referring to is uh, my two granddaughters, Ava and Layla, and your daughters are in the South LA uh, women's, young women's soccer league, right? Which is in itself an amazing contribution. And I mean, where I feel hopeful, you know, I do feel hopeful is that 
I think that just a strange way of talking about it is that I still think the black community is the moral conscience of the country and is the spiritual, political, moral center that is so threatened, threatening to the system because black people do have a phenomenal capacity to lead other races as well. And I was just talking to someone, you know, we were just discussing the all the good work that Bernie Sanders did, but his failure to really resonate with black people as a, you know, as a deep historical intervention. And what happened in South Carolina, you know, where I am, among all the things you want to write and I want to write is please do not blame black people in South Carolina for not voting for Bernie, please. I mean, they had an assessment of the situation. My point is that I think in LA that a lot of the movements we're trying to build here in terms of black Latino alliances, in terms of an Afrocentric worldview, in terms of all the teachings that you're doing, the work in the high schools, the work on police, the more of a comprehensive movement, I think is pretty optimistic from a strategic point of view, as Jackie Lacey could attest. Yes, Jackie Lacey could attest to that. And she'll hopefully be able to really attest to it in November when we vote her out, right? Hold on a second, we're gonna take a pause here. talk about which is um you know during the Channing Martinez for city council campaign and Channing you know we don't know if you want to jump in or not but again having stood in front of the Ralphs uh and stood in front of the uh, Albertsons and did it for four and six hours a day for days upon days again the I don't know what to say. The moral clarity of the black community and just supporting Channing's campaign, in particular, their enthusiasm to put him on the ballot, which was separate from whether or not they were going to vote for him, was very moving to me. You know, and when I would keep saying to people about how do you feel about 
making sure a young black man could get on the ballot. So many people I talked to said, you know, I was the first black woman who ever was the first nurse at this hospital. I was the first everything. I was the first doctor. I was the first person who even got into the, the, the supermarkets. And how, when I would say to people, are you registered to vote? They would go, of course I'm registered to vote. What do you mean am I right? And how much they took the electoral process seriously. So one of the things that I got out of the campaign is a, a desire to even deepen my relationship to the community because I think the community is beautiful and wants more organizers to talk to them. Absolutely. Or, um, you know, when we look at voter data, right, we know that black people vote um, more regularly than any other group um, other than if you break out Jewish folks, they vote, <laughs> <laughs> they vote more. But if you, you know, collapse white folks, then, you know, black people are much more consistent. Um, well, I have a proposal. Why don't we just put all the Jewish folks in with the black folks and leave some <laughs> of the white, other white folks away for a while? <laughs> anyway, go ahead. But black women um, are actually the most consistent yes. and reliable voters of any voter group. Um, right. So we go to vote. If it's for a water board election, whatever election That's it is, right. we're going to vote. Um <laughs> And I think that has to do with understanding that we have to have a multi-pronged approach because Black people are also the most civically engaged when you um, understand uh, civic engagement broadly. Um, so we're the most charitable. We donate the largest ch share of our wealth to um, charity, if you include churches. And for us, churches isn't just about, you know, worshiping God. It's also about, you know, worship, remembering faith and works, right? Uh, faith right. without works is dead. So the idea that the church needs to be a provider of resources to Black communities, to our communities, um, is a guiding principle of the Black church. And so Black people donate a greater share of their money. They volunteer a greater share of their time. Um, we vote more consistently. So I think that Black people will participate in elections because we understand um, what we were just talking about, that the system has got to change. And the only way the system changes is when we do everything we possibly can to change it. So I'm glad that um, you were met by that when you were um, collecting signatures for Channing. And we also know that those same groups of people are gonna continue to engage um, in the work. And so when we ask people to call their elected officials, who's doing the calls, right? When we think about mutual aid, um, I'm thinking about how organization um, just popped up around this, right? Black people just had a deep understanding of what's needed in the community and began to give away everything from diapers to dry food to fresh produce um, in black community without black community having to ask for it, right? I just saw on Instagram, somebody just standing on the corner giving away bandanas so people have something to walk in the store with um, now that we have to cover our faces. Um, and so I just think that's one of the most beautiful things about 
my people is that we're willing to engage and that we have this, when I said faith and works, this deep sense of faith that our work will pay off. Mm. Well, I told, of course, I totally agree having, you know, I'm a Jew who's, you know, been in the Black and Puerto Rican community since I'm 18, I realize. And one of the reasons I was drawn there is, you know, the Jewish culture is also about at least there's a, a you know there are two souls of the Jewish culture. One is the the money culture, and that's something that we were both historically pushed into. But it's also a world that's running around money. But the other side was that your purpose in life is to make the world better. That you're an oppressed people, as my mother said, the Jews and the Negroes are in the same boat, and your job is to fight the fascists. <laughs> that's what I was told when I was five. And I have been doing it all my life. And I do think, again, that the moral appeal of our movement is what gives it the greatest possibility of winning, you know, that we're morally right. And that doesn't answer questions of strategy and tactics. It doesn't mean that you're just morally right. But it continues to be one of the things that why I wake up every morning and do this And then I wanted to segue to something, which is this summer, well, we were were going to have the second round of our Transformative Organizers Summer Internship Program that was very successful last summer with eight high school interns who were amazing for the summer. And since we organize in the middle of this show, I'd like to invite you to when we get it over, uh, when we figure out what the summer looks like, to also be one of the visiting teachers to come in and talk to the young people about your theories and your work and you know, to expose them to some of the really great thinkers and organizers in the city. Well, I would love to come. I get a lot of, I've been out of the classroom for the last year, so I get a lot of um, energy and inspiration from the young people. I would absolutely love to come. Well, we got to, that's how organizers work. We got a deal. You heard it here first on Voices <laughs> from the Front Lines. Uh, Dr. Molina is going to be at the summer program. Uh, last thing I wanted to talk about, which we were talking about off the, off the air, is that Voices from the Front Lines to us, Channing Martinez and I have worked on this for four or five years now together, Channing being primarily the producer but he was also the on-air host until he ran for city council and couldn't be because of Pacifica's, you know, the bylaws about being a nonprofit. But if you look at like the last couple of shows, we had Gina Womack from Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. You can go on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. You can download it. We had Zach Norris the head of the Ella Baker Center talking about his new book about incarceration and different kind of movements. We're trying to make voices into sort of an intellectual center of strategic and tactical thinking about movement building. We don't bring in people that aren't doing anything. It's not, it's not to say they're not great, but there's other shows for them. And yet we have not built this national, we say national, movement building show. But if you just take this conversation, Melina, think about all the people that I think would like to hear this conversation, especially that we're open 24-7 because we're online, right? So 
how can we, and Channing, I'd like you to come in on this, in the last couple of minutes, how can we get more people to listen to this show? And also, that I, I'm sorry that I just became more clear, that every Wednesday morning at 7, you have a regular slot on the terrific... Uh, uh, the Truth, I right. know, I, I missed it for a second. Mm -hmm. Margaret Prescott's Sojourner Truth. How can we get those two slots, you know, to uh, every Tuesday at three plus online? How can we get more people to listen? Well, we'd love to share what it is you're doing and partner with you. So on Margaret's show, we have a segment every Wednesday um, she airs every day, but every Wednesday in the 7 a.m. hour, we have a segment called Campaigners for Black Lives. And right. so that's one of the spaces where we kind of underscore the work that we're doing both locally and nationally. Um, and so like last week, we had comrades from BLM Chicago talk about the rates of covid related death in the black community. Wow. Um, this week we'll be talking about those students deserve demands. Um, and one of our organizers, Joseph Williams will be on. We'd love to partner and do some sort of segment like that on Tuesdays and then use our social media platform to promote it. Um, and also promote the work that we're doing digitally. So um, every Tuesday we still go to police commission meetings, even though they're online, we want um, other people to join. One of the biggest barriers to participating in these supposedly public meetings has been that they're in LAPD headquarters. That's well, right. now they're on Zoom. So I don't care where you are, turn on your phone or your computer or whatever. And even if you're not watching the whole thing, watch part of it and, you know, lift up the fact that Rosario Max murderers, Ryan Lee and Martin Robles, both LAPD officers, were found out of policy, but they're still working for LAPD and haven't been charged by Jackie Lacey. So every Tuesday morning at 9.30, you can go to, the, go to this meeting online and make your voice heard. Every Wednesday, we still have these virtual protests outside of Jackie Lacey's office on our Instagram Live, which is BLM Los Angeles. This week, we're highlighting the murder of Kenneth Ross Jr., who was killed by Gardena police officer Michael Robbins, who had already shot three people in separate incidents before he shot and killed Kenneth um, in Rowley Park in Gardena. And so we want everybody to come and support his mother and his siblings and his son and be on our Instagram Live from four to five every Wednesday. And then on Thursdays, we have the series, which we mentioned, um, which I mentioned on um, COVID-19 in the Black community. And every Thursday at 7 p.m., we're on Instagram Live again, doing, um, it's BLM Los Angeles on Instagram Live, doing a different, focusing on a different aspect of the way in which this crisis um, impacts the Black community in particular. So this Thursday, so tomorrow, um, at seven o'clock, we'll be talking with people around how to protect our physical health. Um, and so we'll be talking with, you know, a medical doctor, we'll be talking with a dietitian, an herbalist, an iridologist, and then we'll be um, doing some real cool, like, workouts online um, on Instagram Live with a, um, a, a coach who owns Thrive Health Lab. 
um, which is right off of Slauson and Crenshaw. So um, yeah. it's going to be real cool. I really want to thank you for the role that you play. And, you know, I, I, I know that, uh, well, I, I don't have to feel embarrassed to just thank you for a lot of things. I think the work that you've done, for instance, with the mothers of slain children is just another element of why I do love Black Lives Matter LA and I love the work you do and, and how deeply moved I am, you know, just to think about saying, uh, say my name, say his name, to bring these children alive and then to always link it to the name of a specific police officer who killed a specific black or Latina child or adult is another piece of work. I mean, I just think if I can say to our listeners, any ways you can help the work of Black Lives Matter LA, uh, like the Strategy Center, but in particular talking about them now, they have far more vision than capacity. And they're inherently uh, ambitious. And the more contributions, the more help they can get, they have an agenda. They have no shortage of agenda. Do you think that's fair, Melina? Absolutely fair. <laughs> All right. So you know what your marching orders, folks, <laughs> is uh, how do they reach you, Dr. Melina Abdullah? Um, so folks can reach us at info at blmla.com. Um, so that's our website. BL, I'm, I'm sorry, blmla.org. Um, our website is blmla.org, and they can follow us on social media um, on Instagram, it's BLM Los Angeles. On Twitter, it's BLMLA. And Facebook is BLM Los Angeles, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And then I'm at Doc Nelly Mel on all social media. Great to work with you. I'll be seeing you very soon. Thank you so much for everything. Talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Voices from the Front Lines. This was a great conversation with Eric Mann and Melina Abdullah. You can tune in to Voices from the Front Lines every Tuesday at 3. Because we are on a quarantine, we are actually pre-recording the shows. And so you can actually even get the show online on our website at VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com. Otherwise, listen to it at kpfk.org or 90. Point seven FM KPFK. Um, if you cannot make it any of those days, you can actually follow us on all of our social media, and we post the actual links to our podcast and to our websites, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, Facebook and Twitter at Eric Man Speaks, and on Instagram at Voices from the Frontlines. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, there's also you can send emails to eric at voices from the front lines, info at the strategycenter.org. The main thing on all these things is whether you're listening, that was the voice of Jenny Martinez, by the way, and the voice of Melina Abdullah is, this is a show about getting involved. And all these websites and social media links are all about you having an opportunity to change the world for the better. This is Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontline saying, all power to the people, stay in touch, and please listen as much as you can. Friends, I'll say clear and state my case, of which I'm certain I believe.